0: We should indeed keep calm in the face of difference and live our lives in a state of inclusion and wonder at the diversity of humanity as we all seek to embrace the void
1: if anyone was ever going to make it back from the void i suppose it was going to be you
0: oh well you know one man's void is another man's piece of cake
1: What about the reality we
0: left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it.
1: People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff.
0: This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 234 of Embrace the Void, where everything is still in flux. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are taking another dive into trans issues, so Let's crit some genders. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Karina Cohen, a gender critical activist and self-identifying transsexual and co-host of the Heterodorks podcast. Karina, would you like to say hi to the Voids?
1: Hello, Void.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. You had me on Heterodorks a little while ago to talk about, you know, moral panics and what counts as a religion. And I'm excited to hear more about your perspective on trans activism. Before we sort of dive into concrete cases, philosophy, all those sorts of things, do you want to tell folks a little bit about your background and what brings you to this area of activism?
1: Sure, a very short bio. Mm -hmm. I started therapy for gender identity disorder when I was a teenager. Uh, When I was 18 years old, I started hormone replacement therapy. And when I was 19, I had what we called a sex change. Uh, Back in 1994, I was 19. And then I lived what we used to call stealth, which is you don't tell the people who you love that you're transsexual. You just let strangers uh, draw their own conclusions. And Then, uh, about 10 years ago, I became interested in some of the uh, disagreements or conflict between radical feminists online and trans people. And I started blogging about it because I thought that there were ways that we could figure out what we have in common and try to figure out what those items might be. And it wasn't very Mm -hmm. long before I became a lot more sympathetic to the feminist side, largely because the conduct of People who are ostensibly on my side.
0: Were there particular inciting incidents that sort of caused you to switch sides, as it were?
1: I came into it as a very heavy free speech sort of person. I my I'm a libertarian, and that goes back. Uh, I I think it's fair to say decades at this point. And I was really disturbed that there was a conference that's called Radfem 2013. And the organizers of it were having a very difficult time maintaining a venue, because trans activists would contact the venue and complain that feminists were meeting there. And I thought that that was incredibly unjust. And I tried to make an argument to the people who I thought were my side at the time, saying, you know, it's it's not necessary that you have to agree with these women or that they have to agree with you, but that you would want to have the rights and privileges to meet to talk about things that are politically relevant to you. And I think that you ought to support their right to do so even if you don't agree with the things that they're gonna talk about. But I was not able to find very many, uh, there were a couple of people on, on my side, trans people who agreed with me, but I found myself very quickly uh, being in a minority on that view. And Mm -hmm. a sort of language that was used to justify deplatforming feminists at the time, I think is, on on its face, if you saw some of it, you would say that at the the worst, it it was violent. And at the least, it was uh, arguably misogynistic.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you said you self-identify as a libertarian. That plays a role in this. Do you want to say a little more about what being a libertarian means for you? Is this sort of a broad... Anti-sort of enforcement, or or how do how do you understand libertarianism here?
1: Well, there's some probably some libertarians who would say that I'm not libertarian enough to call myself a libertarian. But I think that the default posture of policymakers should be to find solutions that require the least amount of intervention, Mm -hmm. because the people who decide on policies are not necessarily the ones who are best placed to have all of the information to make the right decisions on policies. Okay. So, so a, a humble approach in policymaking, let's put it that way.
0: Okay, that makes sense, which will be interesting. want there's definitely some specific policy cases I want to get to. Uh, before we do that, though, I do want to respect the traditions of your people and greet you in the way of your people. So let me start by asking, would you be willing to define a woman for me?
1: A uh, A woman? That is a great question.
0: What is it to be a woman?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know what it it is to be a woman, but I can tell you what it's like to be a a transsexual. But do you want to just work on the definition of woman for a moment? I'm actually
0: just genuinely curious what, you know, because I know that this is something that gender critical folks ask a lot. People people define woman. So I'm curious what your sort of elevator pitch definition is for a woman.
1: Well, my view on that has changed a little bit recently after speaking with Carol Hooven, who wrote a book on testosterone. I actually and just
0: finished that book. It's a good book.
1: It's a great book, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a few there's things t- that I would quibble on, but overall I think it's a really good piece.
1: Well, there's a part where she's talking about how bodies, human bodies uh, particularly mm-hmm. develop sexually. And I'm going to put it in layman terms because I don't have the the skills to even regurgitate what I read from the book because it, it goes into some detail. But chromosomes contain a blueprint for how to build a male body and how to build a female body. And in most cases, the, the cells that take that blueprint and work on it build the right thing. But there are times that those cells, for whatever reason, even though the, the chromosomes are supposed to have the a particular blueprint in it, the cells don't build the right body. So I would say that In the vast majority of cases, a woman is what results when you have an XX genotype and the body builds the right model. And Mm -hmm. a a man is what gets created when you have a Y chromosome, has a SRY encoding on it that has the information on how to build a penis and testes. When that works correctly, you get a man, and there are some cases where... You might have a man who actually has an XX uh, genotype, and occasionally you might have a a woman who has an XY genotype.
0: Mm-hmm. So that seems like, a, as I would understand it, a definition of when people are often talking about sex or biological sex, they're talking about something like what you were describing yes. there, and maybe the secondary sex characteristics that come along with that you know, the blueprint being played out properly. Now, do you think that's 100% synonymous with what we should mean by, like, man or woman in the gender sense?
1: I think generally so, and by and large so. I don't have complete coherence with, or, or agreement, I guess, with all of the most gender-critical points of view, because I think that you could say something like... um, you know, let's, let's say that I walk into a convenience store mm-hmm. and that there's a couple of people in there who see me and they perceive me as being a woman and the person working the cash register rings up my transaction, I buy a, a water and a candy bar and I leave and if nobody in there identified me as trans and you asked them, uh, tell me about that woman who just came in here. Mm-hmm. They're not. Their response isn't going to be, "Well, what is a woman?" Right? Mm-hmm. They're going to describe me as best as they can and move on with their day, because there are these temporary transactions, interactions that we have in society, where people either read you as the uh, the sex that's different from what what your uh, biological sex is. And in those types of transactions or those sorts of interactions, for practical purposes, your sex is whatever people read you as, mm. or, or or whether you're a man or a woman, I should say, is whatever people read you as.
0: And do you see that like not just descriptively, but also like normatively, in the sense that you know it's generally good in society for individuals to sort of read people as the gender that they are presenting in this kind of way?
1: Well, I think we do it subconsciously. I don't think that it's any sort of moral or um, ethical decision anybody's making about how they're perceiving somebody else's uh, sex. There's people I wouldn't who assume see we're consciously
0: as, doing it. I just mean, oh. is it good that we, like, do we want a society that promotes that versus a society where people are, like, going around trying to oh. confirm if somebody, or, like, we're preventing people from passing uh, or going stealth or however we want to put this, um, in society?
1: Well, I don't think that there's anything that we can do to change it. I think it's just going to be what it is. I don't, I don't think that we can change the rules of society to change how people perceive somebody else's sex. So okay. if people like me, if, if I'm doing a good enough job passing, mm-hmm. then very few people will subconsciously or consciously uh, make the decision to, to interact with me as um, a man. And mm. that's true. That's true of all trans people. Is if you want to be perceived as being a, a member of the opposite sex, that does take some effort. that takes some work.
0: Yeah, we, we can certainly talk about like how you know one one pushback there is going to be that like trans individuals don't owe society passing, and especially if if passing ends up meaning conforming to gender stereotypes or something like that. So it, it gets oh. very tricky to write, make sense of what passing means in, a, in like a demanded kind of way. But let me let me just clarify here a little bit. So you're talking about like how individuals experience you. I'm also curious, like from a societal level, do you think there are some situations in which society, you know, in terms of its laws and policies should sort of view someone as, you know, a gender that is different mm-hmm. than they are, you know, assigned sex at birth?
1: Yeah, I used to. Uh, Let me explain that in just a moment, though, because I do, if you don't mind, I would like to go back to something that you said, because I I do have something to address on it. You said that society or trans individuals do not owe society uh, any particular type of gender presentation. Mm -hmm. And I'm paraphrasing you, but I I hope that you Mm -hmm. agree that that's basically what you said. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. But I would also say that society does not owe trans individuals to treat those individuals the, as the sex that they identify as. So I I agree that the lack of obligation goes both directions. Mm. I, yeah, I'm not sure that I would
0: agree, but I, I guess I'm curious to hear sort of your answer to the question about are there situations in which it does, when, when society ought right. to recognize them in this yep. way, and then we can sort of go from there.
1: Right. So my initial answer was, I used to believe that. Mm -hmm. and there's something that i refer to as the old social contract and the old social contract was that if you were going to become trans which at the time that i transitioned there was no transgender it was just transsexual that the so so, the social contract at the time is you have a real life test which is you socially transition without uh, medicine or surgery then if it is demonstrated that you were able to have uh, adequate amount of social integration then you can have uh, HRT and then surgery and that surgery was sex reassignment surgery it amputated your male genitalia and that's significant because a man who does not have a penis or testicles cannot provide any uh, cannot rape a woman mm-hmm. and Therefore, that social contract included some safety or some guarantees for women that the uh, transsexual individuals who were supposed to be socially integrating among them were not going to be represent the same threat that an ordinary man would.
0: Do you mean in the sense, in the narrow sense of rape, where like if they no longer have a penis and and the definition of rape involves penetration with a penis that they can't do it, or do you mean in the sense that like? they will lose the motivation to do it and and become less of a a threat in that kind of way
1: in the more practical sense because if you don't have a penis you cannot rape a woman you, especially you cannot impregnate a woman
0: you could still i mean like i guess this is a situation where i'm not sure if we how much hangs on calling it rape versus sexual assault but like you could still sure. violently sexually assault yes. a woman though Ab- that's right?
1: absolutely true that, that so, in
0: means. in the sense that, like, I guess I'm trying to understand in what sense you're less of a threat.
1: Well, the the threat of causing um, the same sort of side effects, which could be pregnancy, which could be the transmission of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, the act of penetration itself would have to be done uh, digitally or using some sort of uh, tool instead of with a penis. So there there are the threat level of somebody who's had sex reassignment surgery is less than somebody who has not. Now, that's not zero. I agree with you. It's not zero. But okay. part, part of the old social contract was that there was an assumption, uh, and I don't think that it was ever validated with data, but there was an assumption that trans women, uh, transsexual women, were less of a threat to natal women than men were. Mm-hmm. But that was that was that was uh, predicated on a whole bunch of assumptions, and it's not like there was a convocation of women who got together and agreed to it. It was something that was more or less uh, pushed on them without any consent.
0: So that's that was the past situation, and you feel like you were on board with that previously. Are you saying you're sort of not on board with that now? And is that a way to say that there are no situations you you feel like this is? It, the answer to my question, ultimately, here, there are currently no situations in which you feel that?
1: There is the definition of trans is not stable. And so, because we can no longer assume that a transsexual is somebody who's had these degrees of body modifications that would present less of a threat to women, um, that social contract doesn't apply anymore because the what you would categorize as trans now can include any body shape of any capability of of any reproductive capability.
0: is there a criteria if society set this criteria, you know, getting surgery, getting uh, replacement, living in a certain way for a certain period of time, in which you'd say, I, I feel comfortable saying that society should you know view this person as a woman and let them you know, be in women's facilities or whatever that means in terms of you know, being viewed as less of a threat in this way?
1: Well, that's how it used to be. And I did not at the time have any sort of reflection on what my own assumptions entailed. Having engaged with feminists, I have a different point of view now than I did. But at the time that I transitioned, I thought that that was an okay scenario. And I'm not going to suggest that we should go back to that. There are a lot of reasons why we shouldn't. In fact, I think we're gonna get into those in a minute but um mm-hmm. i've I have heard from a number of uh feminists who are uh, some mix of radical feminists and gender critical feminists that the old social contract was um livable
0: okay so and you feel like that that could be the case again in theory?
1: No, I don't think it could ever be the case again. I think okay. it's impossible for us to get there again. The biggest problem with the old social contract in, in terms of, how to, how to put this, this is weird because this is almost more of a gender critical idea than a trans idea, but the idea that we should expect individuals to have to engage in surgery, which is extremely risky, the idea that we should uh, expect people to have to take that uh, risk, which, which is potentially a deadly risk in order for them to go about day to day with any particular type of gender expression is actually a very rigid and conservative idea. Mm-hmm. And we would not want to change society to go backwards in the way that individuals aren't allowed to have more ability to express themselves or, or have a, a diverse gender expression. Does-
0: Does this create a kind of impossible situation for trans individuals where they feel like if they try to say, okay, here are the criteria that we're willing to accept, you know, we'll we'll meet these criteria for you to, you know, then recognize us as the gender that we identify as Mm -hmm. they get accused of you know, essentialism, they get accused of stereotyping women, whatever they put forward is viewed as like reductionist of the nature of women or something like that. But if they don't put those things forward, they're accused of not giving a good de- definition, not giving criteria, et cetera. It seems like there's a no-win situation here. How, how would you, what would you recommend for individuals who yeah. are trying to present an option that will be acceptable to your community?
1: There is a win situation, but it's very, very difficult to get to. And I don't expect that we're going to get to it. The win condition or the, the, the optimal outcome would be that for individuals like myself who chose to transition, that we would be able to do so in a way where we did not feel ashamed about our past, that we did not feel ashamed about some of the choices that we're making for our bodies, and that we were not treated as aliens or exiles of our own sex, but Mm -hmm. rather that we were um, seen as extraordinary and different members of our own sex and without prejudice or bigotry. So one question that I like to sometimes ask people who are on my side, or trans people I should say, is why should it be the case that trans women be a subcategory of woman rather than uh, trans women being a subcategory of man.
0: So I think it matters for situations like the policy stuff that we're going to talk about, where, you know, we've talked about bathroom bills before, but I think they are centrally important, given that we all go to the bathroom multiple times a day. You know, if we're going to say as a society, we have two spaces in general for bathrooms, right? Mm -hmm. We have a space that is for males and whatever criteria meeting trans men, right? And we're going to do the same thing for women and trans women. Then it's a largely academic question of, you know, are we, are we going to put them in the subcategory of women or are they a separate category? As long as our laws are treating them consistently in all contexts in which it matters, or in all contexts in which there isn't some reason to treat them differently, like, that I think is going to be acceptable to a large number of trans activists. Are you saying that that you think that would be a good outcome? Or do you not, like, so, you know, for example, are you fine with saying trans women aren't women, but they should be allowed to use women's restrooms?
1: Maybe. Uh, it's it's interesting that you're asking this because uh, just before we started the recording, a, I, I, I uh, mm-hmm. caused some stir in the, in the uh, gender crits. <laughs> over the weekend and, and one of them was mm-hmm. following up and was asking me, do I uh, keep myself uh, out of all women's spaces? And my reply was that I'm doing so more and more and that I stay out of any spaces where, where women could be naked. And uh, the exceptions that I still, uh, where I use women's spaces is in um, public and populated public restrooms. And um, I'm going to have to get back to her because she just accused me of being a hypocrite for giving that answer. And I might be. So the answer here is that uh, it's possible that I am a hypocrite in this particular instance. Okay. Uh, what I'll tell her and what I'll tell you is that, for example, the most recent uh, time that I had to make this decision is that I was traveling through an airport. Mm-hmm. And I... Without without asking or telling people how to refer to me as, as a, a gendered person, I, 99% of the time people believe I'm female without me saying anything. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to the airport, use the men's restroom, and then come out to have security start questioning me about what I'm doing in the bathroom. Right, And that might not happen. People might just ignore that I'm in there, mind their own business, or let me go but I'm also uh, trying to catch an airplane. And I haven't gotten to the point yet where I feel like I'm so dedicated to the principle that um, all sex segregated spaces have, have to have the same uh, level and degree of protection to them that I'm just gonna use the men's room everywhere. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it on a basis where uh, if there's a third space that I can use, I do that if there's a single-use bathroom that I can use, uh, I can use that bathroom. I I use the men's room in that case, um, generally, uh, more and more. Um, I should say it's a little cheaty for me to say that because we've been under a pandemic situation for the last two years. So uh, Uh I've I've probably used the public bathrooms uh, less than 10 times in the last two years. So. um, I
0: mean... This is fascinating to me because like I, you know, as an ethicist, I hear you doing ethical work and saying, you know, I'm trying like like someone talking about, you know, they're trying to become a vegetarian or something for ethical reasons. Like you're describing you're trying to be consistent. Now, I struggle with this because, A, first of all, I I think philosophically there's a consistent position that you could adopt that I don't think requires you to be using men's restrooms. Um, but But like I'm also it seems like a lot of cost for what you're doing. From It's not clear to me who is benefiting from you refraining from using the women's restrooms in these situations. Do you have a sense mm-hmm. of like who has benefited from this behavior?
1: Well, I think of it somewhat as experimental. I feel that I, I have listened to women who say that they want to have uh, complete sex segregated spaces. I think that the rationale that they have is defensible. It's arguable, but I think it's defensible. And uh, in some cases, I don't think it's even arguable. In places like prisons, I don't think that there's even an argument. Um, males, uh, particularly intact males, should not be housed in the same setting as as women. I don't. I don't think that there's even a question there. Uh, when you're talking about something that's uh, extremely short term. Uh, like a use of a public bathroom uh, there 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 are actually cases where assaults do happen in in public bathrooms, so it 's not like women are are making up fears it 's just uh, measuring measuring the risk right um, If I get to the point where I have comfort using men 's facilities and it turns out that it 's not a big deal, and it turns out that the uh, fears that I have, which are not fears of men, but are rather fears of creating disturbances that I have to spend uh, attention to resolve. If that, those turn out to be baseless fears, that would give me more confidence being able to recommend the same sort of uh, practices to other transsexuals or other trans people.
0: Would you say... So, okay, I'm going actually I'm ask a question here first. You said, recommending other trans individuals. Do you think that we should be as a society allowing people to transition?
1: I think that there are two parts to that. One is that we have other practices right now that are body modification practices, and we in order for us to choose to regulate something, we really need to have enough information that what we're doing is when we're limiting an individual's freedom, when we're when we're li- limiting their liberty, that we have a good justification at a social level for doing so, mm-hmm. and that there should be an assumption that we have to let people choose to do things that may ultimately harm them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, the microphone is is not too bad, but I've got a little cup of bourbon here, uh-huh. and uh-huh. we know that alcohol consumption is harmful to people but we let them do it anyway it's it's mm-hmm. regulated to some extent but it's it's available we have we have to choose these things social sh- in society about what sort of private uh personal behaviors we're going to regulate i think transition is one of those things where um when you're talking about medical transition that's 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 what the assumption was right yeah it wasn't it wasn't merely social transition it was like Uh, Hormones and surgery, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean hormones and surgery. I think that that's one of those things where we might have to start thinking in the future about uh, what things are ultimately less risky for people that we don't really care about whether they do it or not or things that are so dangerous that we prohibit the uh, activity.
0: Do you, I mean, maybe you feel like this is a situation where we just don't have the data yet, and so your libertarian leaning is let people keep doing it until we have data that proves that it's so terrible that we shouldn't let people do it. Um, do you think we are at any risk of like acquiring sufficient data that you feel like we should stop people from transitioning?
1: I don't think that we should stop people from transitioning, but the more that I learn about some procedures, uh, particularly phalloplasty, which has a complication rate of uh, 50% or higher. Mm-hmm. I I think that what we, we really ought to do from an ethical standpoint is figure out are, are these uh, surgeries causing so much harm that there's a, a reason to ban them.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, and this comes, you know, this brings us to the recent current event issues that have been in the news, right? We have the situation in Texas where Mm -hmm. they, you know, effectively criminalized uh, providing what we would say gender affirming care, whatever term we want to use for yeah. underage individuals and they 're investigating families for child abuse there um, it's, I think it 's been put on hold now by a judge
1: it, it has can, can we talk about Texas for just a second did sure. you read, Did you read the attorney general 's analysis of that
0: uh, no i haven 't all
1: right i 'm just going to make it very short though because I, I think it 's interesting to mm-hmm. understand what the attorney general 's argument was, which is that in Texas. Uh, so, so the whole uh, argument is predicated on sterility.
0: So, mm-hmm.
1: it is illegal in Texas to sterilize anybody who is uh, twenty-one. Year, age twenty-one or younger, mm-hmm. and the surgeries that were banned, like orchiectomy to remove testicles or uh, hysterectomy to to remove. Uh, women's uh, reproductive organs, um, those are banned. And and that's what the attorney general was saying. And that hormone replacement therapy is likely to cause sterility, which is true, and that it should be banned on that basis. So the the whole Texas argument is not just banning gender uh, affirming care. It's on the basis of things that would cause the patient to uh, be at
0: risk of sterility. What do you think about that argument?
1: Well, it is a, a legal analysis. So it's not really so much an argument. It's a, an interpretation of law. I, I would argue
0: that they're trying to provide a moral justification there and not merely a legal one, right? Because yeah. you know, law is not always morality, but at the end of the day, a lot of it is us trying to codify our morality in a way that is socially functional, right? So oh, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, You know, if I have a kid with childhood leukemia and I give them full body radiation, there's a good risk of sterilization from a process like that, too, as I understand it. Right. That like. Oh, yeah. So but we're not going to criminalize treating childhood leukemia. You see what I'm saying? It seems like there's a weird inconsistency here. These are two medical treatments that are being prescribed by doctors, both of which, let's assume for the sake of argument, setting aside the empirical questions about sterility, assume for the sake of argument, it carries with it a risk of sterility. You know, That doesn't seem to me a sufficient argument to criminalize a medical treatment.
1: Okay. okay. Well, let's use your example. If a child has leukemia and you don't use radiation therapy, what is the likely uh, disposition of that child's health?
0: They are probably going to die.
1: Right. So if you have a child who um, you know, I, since it's me, let's use a, a boy as an example. If you have a boy who identifies as trans and you do not uh, cut off this, this child's testicles, what's the likely uh, disposition? Well, you, of that you, would, child?
0: You, you would say if you do not prevent them from going through male puberty, right? Because you're not allowing hormone blockers, you're not allowing anything that's well, going to sure, cause sure. potential what, what, sterilization. Whatever,
1: whatever mechanism it is.
0: Right. If, so my, if, my point if, would if you you be don't,
1: if you don't, they're going to. That.
0: Okay, well, if we assume that they are genuinely transgender, which I don't think you would deny there are some number of people who are right. Yeah. Then it seems like they would suffer. They would potentially suffer quite a bit um, and they'd be at higher risk for a variety of uh, harms as a result of being prevented from getting that treatment. It would seem like not necessarily death, though that might be on the list, given the potential for suicide.
1: Right. But it's it's not a on its face, a life or death situation. For That's some people, it is. Making. I mean, there certainly well, it, are some it,
0: people, right, who will, I who will, so. you don't think there are any people who will take their own life because they're prevented from transitioning?
1: I have seen some of the data on it, Aaron, and the, so it's it's complex, but let me give you the simple answer and then go back to the complex part, okay? The risk of suicide uh, attempts for trans individuals is certainly higher. Than the average population, but it's Mm -hmm. a lot lower. It's you know the number that's most famously bandied about is a forty-one percent suicide attempt rate, and I don't know if you know that number is actually not good for a number of reasons. Um, I don't. don't I'm certainly familiar with
0: there being a debate about the numbers and like yeah. i will even go so far as to say that there is probably some amount of inflation of the numbers happening by trans yeah. activists i wouldn't deny that I, my point would be though that like
1: right but, i don't but, think we can
0: draw a distinct line between life and death situations here and like it also just seems to me that we're just you know are are we saying that all you can only give someone a sterilizing treatment if the alternative is death for them like guaranteed death
1: well, we're talking about minors right yes Well, you have to have some sort of risk and and benefit analysis if you're going to do something like that.
0: I absolutely agree. I just think that it seems to me... There's a benefit analysis that makes sense to me that is if an individual, if we have very good reason to think this individual is genuinely trans, um, which is something that I do think, you know, contrary to um, gender critical activists in general, I think you can actually discern these sorts of things from a fairly young age in a lot of cases um, that like for those individuals, we have a pretty good reason for thinking the treatment is going to be beneficial to them. Um, and so, in those situations, it seems very weird to me to say, but we 're still going to criminalize it based on this potential side effect
1: yeah i I want to come back to something that you're you 're saying about genuinely trans because i I want to mm-hmm. accept it for the sake of argument, but I want to come back to the definition of that maybe maybe after we finish this uh point here because okay i 'm curious what your definition of genuinely trans is. Uh, for somebody who and, and, and for the sake of the rest of this argument let 's just assume that it 's somebody who 's not going to have uh, regrets in the future about transitioning, uh, which is a pretty simple and hopefully a safe definition um,
0: yeah. it 's a little iffy, but but for, for yeah. the moment, go ahead and okay. finish your thought
1: let let 's uh, just take it there for a moment if somebody 's not going to have regrets transitioning in their life, then the risk of waiting until that individual is 18 versus doing that when they're a minor should not be significantly high. So let me go back to the trans suicide attempt rate for a moment. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me but hopefully we can agree that it's about five times higher for trans and uh, LGBT individuals to to make a suicide attempt which is a uh, uh, factor 5 is uh, tremendously higher than average. If you start to look at the sort of uh, comorbidities of uh, LGBT individuals, unfortunately, there's something like uh, between 70 and 80% um, comorbidities with other mental health issues like depression, anxiety. And mm-hmm. um, that correlation makes it very difficult to know whether the higher risk of of having a suicide attempt is related to any of those comorbid issues.
0: Mm. Sure. So, I mean, you're going to have potential confounds in there and you'd want more research on this. But again, it yes. seems like it would be a situation where, you know... I guess what I'm saying is, it seems like, given what you were saying earlier, as a libertarian who wants data before you criminalize something, it doesn't right. seem like we currently have sufficient data to justify the cost-benefit analysis of criminalizing and investigating families. Oh, and, yeah. And, like,
1: and let me let so me I, add in. I, I think that Texas policy right. is horrible.
0: Okay, and, and do you feel similarly about the sort of the one? Uh, I think this is in idaho right the one that just went through the part of the legislature hasn't passed into law yet but basically just sort of flat criminalizes um these kind of treatments for young individuals um you know one person i think defended it by saying this is essentially child mutilation do you think that that is inappropriate language for discussing this kind of issue
1: um i don't i don't know uh I think that there are reasons people use that sort of language that is defensible, but in my opinion, I don't think that criminalizing uh, any of this is necessarily the way to go for a number of reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the biggest reasons is that most of the doctors who are, uh, not all of them, but most of the doctors who families are working with are just trying to do their best. Those doctors are taking guidance from their professional organizations or from authorities in the field, and mm-hmm. they're making good faith efforts, and I, I don't think throwing people in jail when they're, to the best of their ability, trying to uh, provide medicine mm-hmm. and provide help is really the, the right way to um, regulate. So I, I, don't, I don't support throwing doctors in jail, even okay. if I think that the procedures that they're doing are not right.
0: Now, let me ask, is it really the case that you think these procedures are never right? So this goes back to the question, I guess, of the genuine trans individual, right? right? Yeah. I think what what I mean there is, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge there are situations where people pretend to be this thing for various inappropriate reasons, right? They're a very, very small percentage, but like a non-zero percentage. Um, so I think people who are just lying, right, is a, is a, a category of individuals, right? Then we have, yeah. I think, genuinely some very individuals- small. Right. Very small. Right. And then we have, I mean, like we're all, all of these are small groups, right? For broadly speaking. But um, then we have, you know, individuals who, like you were saying, potentially have some of these other comorbidities or other uh, mental health issues. um, And, you know, may think and may genuinely think that they would benefit from transitioning, and then try it, and then don't, and de-transition, and like you know, continue to you know live a, a functional life or something like that. But they were not what I would think of as quote unquote genuinely trans in that sense. To me, what I what I mean here is you know an individual who. You know for lack of better philosophical terminology has a gender identity that does not identify you know that does not correspond to their sex assigned at birth and that they would live a fundamentally better life psychologically mental health wise all these various kinds of things if they were allowed to transition and society treated them as the uh gender identity that they that they hold in that way do you believe that people like
1: that exist well I no longer believe people have a gender identity. So that sort of undermines it a little bit. What I believe is possible, and maybe likely, is that there are individuals who, for whatever reasons, internal or external, might have a better quality of life if they transition than if they don't.
0: Hmm. Okay. So at least we can talk about and until we have overwhelming evidence that says that these people are actually being harmed and then we move on to the criminalization right. conversation, you and I can say for legislative purposes, there are individuals who would benefit from transitioning and society should allow them to do so um, with special debates about young individuals and things
1: like that. Yes, I'd agree with that.
0: Okay, great. Um, now let me ask about another legislation because I, I know sports is a big issue, and I don't want to. I've, I've been falsely accused of not being willing to talk about trans issues in sports. Um, so you recently spoke, I think, at um, in favor of. I think it's House Bill One Zero Four One. Yes. Um, do you want to explain a little bit what the bill? Yeah. Do you want to explain a little bit what the bill is?
1: Yeah, it's pretty simple, and and from what I can tell, it's taken from a, a model that was used and, and passed in a, Idaho. Uh, it lays out three things, basically. One is that uh, um, anybody, I think, can play on a boy's team. I think that's one of the the, the provisions. Um, the second one is that only girls can play on girls' teams. And the third one is that anybody can play on uh, like uh, non-competitive sports activities. So if you had like mm-hmm. a, a kickball team that was for, for boys and girls, uh, everybody can participate in that.
0: And what age does this go up to?
1: What was proposed in Indiana is that it would cover grade school and secondary, and then it was amended to cover uh, just the grade school.
0: Okay. K K through 12. K through 12. Okay. So that's up to like 18-year-olds then, right? 17, 18-year-olds?
1: It's not by age. It's by grade level. But I I suppose you could have uh, 14-year-olds who are seniors or maybe even 19-year-olds who are seniors.
0: Okay. So what is the... So let me understand that in conjunction with what we were just sort of in agreement about. So, you know, if we have our druthers right in um, in that state, you could have individuals who receive gender affirming care as a young individual, um, you know, assuming that um, we still think that 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 should be allowed because we don't have sufficient evidence to the contrary yet. Right. Um, you know, if someone has been doing that from a young age, hasn't gone through gendered puberty, should there be an exception where they should be allowed to play on a women's sports team?
1: I have, uh, maybe a, this is a dodge, right? So forgive me if it is.
0: Okay. If it, if it is, I'll just re-ask the question. So Yeah, that's
1: that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I think that uh, if somebody has not undergone, if a male has not undergone androgenization, Mm -hmm. that the degree of competitive advantage that they might have is likely to be so small that it wouldn't make any difference, but that it would not be feasible in law or policy to predicate... The participation of the male in female sport on the degree to which they've been androgenized.
0: Why not? We 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 use hormone levels as a test, right? For oh, yeah, but
1: hormone that, levels don't measure your how how androgenized your body is. That's so. That's, oh, I'm sorry. You're you're, like you're a, saying
0: you're saying not just that they you're requiring more than just they don't go through male puberty. You're saying they have to receive some additional treatment to be yeah, de- let, let, demalified let me, more so?
1: Yeah, let me try to be clearer about this. Yeah, okay. That if you started puberty blockers on a, a nine-year-old boy mm-hmm. so that he never experiences male puberty, mm-hmm. and then you uh, give him, or, or you would probably say, Aaron, now she, um, mm-hmm. cross-sex hormones and estrogen, because that person has never gone through male puberty, which I was calling androgenization, that person is, is never going to uh, mm-hmm. have the same level of competitive advantage as a, a similar boy who had not gone through that process. Right. And, and his uh, ability to compete against girls is not going to be similar to a boy who's, let's say, uh, starting transition at 16, who has already gone through a significant amount of androgenization,
0: Right. But so going back to our book, our friend, the T book, right? Like, exactly. it, you know, pu- going through that puberty, it seems like could make a difference that wouldn't simply go away on hormone replacement therapy. I think that's a worthwhile debate to have in sports, which is why I'm asking specifically in this situation, if they haven't gone through that. I'm I'm, I'm confused, though, why you would say it's impossible for us to put a caveat into that bill that says if they've, you know, not gone through male puberty, then they should be playing in women's sports
1: because there's not. You know, there's not like a COVID test for puberty where you can just stick a, a Q-tip in your nose to figure out how much puberty you've gone through.
0: But you could show history of treatment, right? They've been on puberty blockers all the, this X number of years, or something like that.
1: Well, you could, but there's so much middle ground that, by by law or policy, it would be very difficult to carve out an exception. So I'm I'm willing to say if if there is a clear way to carve that out then I would probably change my mind. I just don't see a clear way to, to distinguish that. But, but let me add a B point here, which uh-huh. is that I really think that children should not be having their uh, puberty artificially truncated. I, I find that uh, wrong for a number of reasons. And I'm reluctant to spend a lot of time thinking about uh, how the law could be carved out to, to make room for an exception that I think probably should not exist in the first place.
0: So, I mean, I know individuals personally who I think are benefiting from that treatment. I know. Like, well, well, I mean, like, well, like, I'm just genuinely curious, what would you say should be happening for those individuals then?
1: It's a one of those cases where if you are changing your sex and you wanted to, let's say you were a boy and you had um, uh, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, and and you wanted to be competitive on a girl's team, I think that that's one of those places where we just have to say uh, there's some unfairness, possibly, that's going to affect that individual because it is in the interest of uh, retaining the fairness for all of the other individuals who are who matter because the the fairness for girls matters as 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 well.
0: So, do you think there is at least in your cost benefit analysis an unfairness towards the individual who either you know is forced to compete with a you know in a sex that they don't identify with? Let me also ask you. So, y'all, y'all's law specifically is this only goes one way, right? So, you wouldn't have a situation like with the trans wrestler who's being forced to compete against um cis women despite being a trans male right y'all are specifically only having people go it's not allowed to go in one direction right
1: sort of i don't have i don't think that there's any advantage that a female would have playing on a um boys team so it it is one direction in the sense that i and, and this is the law in indiana as well if there was a a girl who identified as transgender and she wanted to play on the boys team uh, there's nothing in the law that would stop her from doing that
0: if we found a sport where it gave them an advantage would you want that law amended for fairness reasons
1: we would have to start coming up with new sports because i mean women Women have, have an advantage
0: an in-, in riflery at least as i understand it a small one but well, a non- non-existent one
1: <laughs> uh I, i'd be willing to see some data on that but okay. uh, may, maybe maybe something special for riflery, but I would be pretty surprised if that would um, be a significant advantage. Now, I mean, this, I mean, that, this this really is about fairness, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm. I,
0: I, it is a little challenging for me to understand, as from a libertarian perspective, why why you would necessarily be in well, support of this kind of legislation. It does seem like it's a little bit over over-controlling of... Yeah. I mean, like, instead of, like, why not have a situation where if people want to set up a, no, you know, a trans-exclusionary league, for example, right, where women only compete against women in this kind of way, wouldn't it be better to let the market choose to set up that alternative rather than command that nobody can, you know, like, no, no school can choose to go against this particular law, it seems?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because when... It's we assume now that anybody who loves another individual can get married. Uh, that's only very recent history, right? So um, my libertarian principle is that there shouldn't be marriage. The state doesn't really have a very strong interest in prohibiting or blessing the institution of marriage, right? But, but then, uh, because marriage exists, then... The next principle for me is, well, if it exists, then then it has to be equal so for, coming from that libertarian point of view, I would like to say, uh we should consider whether we want to have sports in public school in the first place. We might want to mm-hmm. even consider whether we have public school in the first place. We might want to figure out to what extent the government participation in the service is really beneficial in net. So I am uh, would be excited to have a conversation like that. But because we have an educational public education system, then the next step is to say, well, uh, since my preferred policy of maybe getting rid of that can't practically be achieved, then what's the next thing that I can do to at least help get more towards a, a position of fairness and equality?
0: Okay. So... We're running a little short on time here, and there's lots more things that I'm still very curious about. Um, let me let me try to sort of ask two questions that I think are related, and you can tell me um, if you see these as being kind of connected. So, one thing regarding these laws, especially the Texas and the Idaho law not the not the sports one, but the um, mm-hmm. just the outright banning it one. It, I've noticed what seems to be a split to some extent between the messaging from like gender critical turf, whatever term we want to use leadership, right? Where they're saying this is not what we actually wanted, right? This is an overreach. This is bad uh-huh. in various kinds of ways, but the like rank and file gender critical folks I see online seem strongly, largely in favor of these laws seem to think that like, this is good. We're finally rolling back abuse of children in these, you know, in like really firm handed kind of ways. I'm curious if you see, a difference like that um, and, and what you think that maybe means uh, for the movement. And and let me just tie it to one other thing, something else that you had mentioned. I know that you um, take some credit for having um, kind of coin or popularized this idea of gender critical, but you mentioned that you feel like recently this community has, has shifted in negative ways towards a more extreme position potentially. Are these things connected?
1: <laughs> well, uh, that's a very complicated. Uh, I know, question, I know. I just Eric. like there's so it's, there's so it's, many it's more things I want to understand. So many things into that.
0: I, I know. I apologize. I'm just that's, there were so many okay. things I'm still curious about.
1: I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of take that apart a little bit. Yeah, um, go for it. I, I'm gonna make a couple of uh, decla- declarations here. Anybody who supports uh, regulating provision of gender services to children by criminalizing it is just wrong. That's not the approach to go here. So whether that's in Texas, uh, Idaho, wherever criminal penalties are being proposed on doctors and therapists, that is the wrong approach. And I, I will say very clearly, if you have a situation like Texas where you are scapegoating families and making them fear investigation from agents of the state, that is a terrible policy and nobody should support it whether they're uh, liberal or conservative or gender critical or pro-trans, anything, nobody should support that. That is just terrible policy. Um, Let me pitch something that I think is, I I support wholly. And actually somebody sent me um, Missouri House Bill 2399 this morning, I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but it, it looks like it supports something which I strongly favor and that is to increase the statute of limitations for malpractice related to gender-affirming medical treatments, and it requires, or or I guess I should say it increases risk on providers who fail to provide a thorough def- differential diagnosis. So, this mm-hmm. would uh, make sure that there's no... Um, one thing that you'll hear from uh, detransitioners very commonly is that they had a, a history of some form of abuse and that they were seeking uh, transition as a way to try to uh, manage that or, or escape that. So failure to to try to find anything like that in a, a patient's past that might be able to be uh, assessed or treated, or mm-hmm. failure to uh, provide uh, comprehensive informed consent, which is uh, goes far beyond just signing a piece of paper. Uh, I don't know if you know the informed consent model, Aaron, but uh, uh, yeah, in, in yeah, trans yeah. circles, you, you you hear it basically reduced often to uh, being given a, a sheet. Actually, this is how it is in practice. This is if you go to a, a maybe not every Planned Parenthood clinic, but there I've heard reports from several Planned Parenthood uh, clinics where people go in and they get prescribed hormones after signing a sheet of paper, right? But comprehensive informed consent means the person who's making that prescription has uh, confidence that not just that a piece of paper was signed, but the person signing it actually understands the risks and the treatment. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's actually what WPATH lays out as well. So what is supposed to be the standard for healthcare actually has a, a very clear and detailed description of what informed consent includes.
0: Yeah. And I want to talk some more in our um, we'd we'll stick around to a little bonus content and talk about the um, the CAS interim report mm-hmm. that um, I think also maybe potentially provides so- some information about where this stuff might actually end up going in terms of policies. Um, but let me only let me ask, t- you know, two quick final wrap up questions. And then I got to torture you a little bit here. Okay. Um, so for, first of all, I was I was interested, you know to flip the script a little bit here instead of sort of what would you say to people on my side of things who disagree with you i'm curious what you would say to gender critical individuals folks on your side who want to try to reach out to folks on my side or folks like me what advice mm. would you give them based on trying to do this kind of work
1: sure and and just to be clear you're you're not trans
0: no, so you say no
1: folks like you uh, can you, uh can you just...
0: trans allies trans activists trans, allies. trans... Well, I, I know i know that the ally word uh whatever right like people yeah. people who are, are are um critical of the gender critical position
1: the advice i give everybody it doesn't matter where you're coming from is just to listen to somebody and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you some credit aaron well gosh that sounds like a backhanded compliment already <laughs> i i no, i i
0: All of my credit is is caveated in that way. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) I'll give you credit, Aaron, is that you're having conversations, and that involves listening to people. And every time I I tell people, on, on trans people or I tell people on my side, it doesn't cost you anything to listen to somebody. You don't have to agree. There's no requirement that you agree with anybody. But if you take the time to listen to somebody, at least you can take an opportunity to understand where they're coming from. And I think that one of the, I I don't don't know how prevalent this is on the gender critical side or or on the trans side for that matter, but there's this assumption that I see oftentimes that uh, there are individuals who just wanna go out and cause harm. And I don't think that the majority of people are, even the people who are doing things that we think are harmful, I don't think that their intent is to cause harm. And so if you start with an intent uh, or or if you start with the assumption that people are not deliberately trying to create harm, but they are perhaps misguidedly trying to uh, cause benefit the way that they know how with the assumptions that they have, uh, that has to be the fundamental uh, belief before you go in and have an interaction Mm -hmm. with somebody. Great.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so one other thing I like to ask is for folks who want to dive deeper into these issues, are there any resources that you would recommend, things that have been particularly helpful for you on your journey, et cetera?
1: That is a great question, and I'm going to have to prepare for the next time somebody asks that.
0: <laughs> okay, no particular blogs. I know that blogs are a big thing for you.
1: Uh, they they are, but uh, I don't know that there's a a good one that really. W- what there ought to be is there ought to be a primer for somebody who, if they are curious about what gender critical uh, belief is, and that they want something that is not designed as propaganda, but is something that's a, a pretty simple and and straightforward, uh, non condescending explanation of, of what the perspective is there's probably something like that out there and and I'm just not thinking of it, but uh, I ought to figure out if that exists uh, and have that bookmarked so that I can uh, mm-hmm. pass that on and if it doesn't exist try to figure out how to bring it to the world
0: fair enough um, that's all right if you think of anything afterwards of course we can always include it in the show notes so don't worry about that all right. um, and you know I want to say I really do appreciate you coming on here as well um, you know I think there are some things that Um, you and I more strongly disagree about we potentially haven't gotten to here but I think it really is really valuable having these conversations and I think um, you are someone who is actively I think trying to listen and not just you know waiting for your chance to dunk or something like that Um, so I appreciate that now unfortunately this means I now have to torture you um, (laughs) now that I've said those nice things so this is the enlightening round Enlightenment comes from within. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those okay. are your only choices. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to define what real means. Just real right. or not real. Okay. All right.
1: Well, well I'll, I'll do my best.
0: That's all we can ever ask for here. Okay. Uh, so first of all, let me just check. Is anything real?
1: Oh, man. You start off with the worst one. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say uh, Yes.
0: Okay, great. So let's find out what is real. First thing, is the external world real or not real? It's real. All right. Colors, real or not real?
1: Uh, not real.
0: Mm, phenomenal consciousness?
1: It's oh, the Inner world of yeah. experience, yeah. Uh, that is, I'm going to say not real. Okay. Free will? Not real.
0: Selves or persons?
1: Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hedge on that one. No not hedging. real not real
0: okay, okay there we go genders not real there we go everybody gets a gimme every episode at least yeah one. thank you um races not real species real morality uh, not real rights
1: um not real knowledge real real small but real okay god or gods not real society real money <laughs> not real numbers real
0: fictional characters not real holes like a hole in the ground <laughs>
1: wow uh real chairs real Sandwiches? Sandwiches? Unknown.
0: <laughs> real, real or not real?
1: Uh, let's go with not real.
0: All right. Science?
1: Uh, let's go with not real.
0: Okay. Natural laws?
1: Give me an example. You mean like gravity? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real. Beauty? Not real. Love? Not real. Causality? Uh, Real.
0: And finally, time.
1: Real.
0: All right. You survived. How do you feel?
1: Uh, I just want to argue some of this so much, because if you have, <laughs> see, see yeah. I'm, I'm truly non-binary in some ways. I understand. Uh, this, well, this, this real, unreal, I want to argue about things that are on the spectrum.
0: Oh, I understand. Well, we can hear a little bit about your particular challenges um, in the bonus segment. We always talk a little bit about that. So for normie folks, though, do you want to let them know um, where they can find your stuff one more time?
1: Yeah. If you want to learn about me, your best bet is to go to the heterodorks.com. That is with a D-O-R-X. And that is a podcast that I do with Nina Paley. We talk about all sorts of different topics, but often circle back to uh, gender and feminism. But we are not afraid to have some bad takes.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair enough. And Twitter handles or anything like that?
1: Twitter, you can also find uh, me in particular at Heterodorks.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having this chat. I appreciate it. And I hope you don't get uh, in too much trouble for any of the things that you've said from your own people in this exchange
1: well if anybody has any problems with what i said i'm sure they'll track (laughs) me down and let me know all right thanks so much as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself
0: you have my everlasting gratitude thanks as always to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible thanks to our top tier patrons our archon level patrons Lawrence shielding sometimes i struggle to come up with a new username worth saying today i didn't even try dude fix the vote Ugh, love Hemant, but sounded so shrill. What happened to Jessica, Chad T., Jesse Urbanowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editors, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at etvpod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter how you identify, you are the void and the void is you.